Hello listeners and now viewers. We are now on YouTube, so if you want to see a video uh, edit of the podcast, that is now available to you. Uh, on today's episode, we've got the wonderful Sapphire Spring. We talk about workflow, uh, editorial, we talk about process, we talk about lighting groups, uh, and we talk about the current state of our world. And it's uh, it's a fantastic chat. So open your retouch software, grab a drink, coffee, whatever whatever your poison is, and uh, and let's go. Morning, morning, morning. How are you doing, Good Tom? Morning. Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, for our listeners, this is our... You can also be our viewers now, because this is Ooh. the first episode we're doing as a actual video. I can only um, apologise for what I look like. <laughs> but I have put my I have put a comb through my hair for the first time this year, so, you know, swings and roundabouts. Well, I've got my wig on as well, so, yeah, we're all good. Um... Yeah, you'll be able to view this over on our YouTube. Um, Tom is incredibly excited because he gets to show off some toys. Now, I realise, obviously, we don't want to make this too exclusive for uh, um, viewers. So I will do my best to describe anything that we <laughs> show on camera. It just We just thought it would add a little bit of depth and make it a bit more personable. Um, and, yeah, spread the reach and the love. That's it. That's it. I mean, that is the only reason we've done it, really. Because if obviously, it wasn't I... cringy enough listening to our own voices. We thought it'd make it even more cringy by having to look at ourselves on camera. Well, I got told years and years ago uh, that I had a face for radio, and so unfortunately, we're kind of really marching forward with that. And now I've got a face for YouTube. <laughs> so... Well, that's that's the thing. That and they didn't know YouTube was going to be a thing. So, well, that's it. So, who's laughing now? That then, <laughs> still, still. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, the, I mean, it has been, for someone who has previously talked about not buying a lot of equipment, and, you know, I, I remember doing something a long time ago called The Great Simplification and, and all sorts of stuff like that. I have now picked I up a couple a of bits. I button that every time you mention The, the Great <laughs> Simplification, it, just, no, doesn't do a, it, does, it plays some kind of Soviet-era fatherland music. <laughs> kind of The Great Simplification. I don't know, it's something so mal about it. It's great. Let me let me rephrase it then. It was never really the great simplification. I tried unsuccessfully to simplify my life. And I did manage to get rid of a lot of kit, uh, which I then sadly had to rebuy because it turns out, as photographers, we do quite need quite a lot of equipment. Um, mm -hmm. And I had gas. But now I've got my spending under control. So let me introduce you to a couple of new bits of kit. <laughs> so I've, I've talked about this one before. Uh, and if obviously you're Same watching this on YouTube... Listeners. Yes, yeah, exactly. For, for the for the listeners, you've heard this before. Um, we, but this is my Mule Carts Tom's camera ring, ring which is Tom actually is very hard showing. to very hard to get in focus on the camera. But basically, what you do there is you put the camera. You you doesn't come with this super clamp, but you clamp that super clamp onto something. Um, yeah. And for the listeners, it is a it is a, a steel ring that has a spigot on. It you... looks a bit like what a gymnast would hold if they were hanging from the yeah, ceiling. Yeah, exactly. It looks like the rings, right? Um, and then what you do is you just plonk the, um, the lens down through the centre of it and you can rest your camera on set because, you know, my digis and my team know I am terrible for lobbing the camera there or just putting it under someone's foot or just chucking it in a bush. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't really care about the equipment, so I just put it down wherever. Um, and then everyone always goes, oh, my God, and then runs over and gets it. But this thing now means that I know exactly where it's going to be, and it's protected because it's got this nice kind of soft um, tape, bar, like bar tape that goes around it. 
and yeah, it's been a, it's been one of my favorite favorite finds. But the um, and I should I should mention the 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 place I got this from was the really nice guys at First Digi, and I ordered it in from Berlin. Um, and those guys are, are so nice to deal with. Um, you know, I would I would pick it up. I I think it was about a hundred quid, which which I know might seem like a lot of money, but it's already kind of paid for itself uh, in me not kicking the um, the camera about. So my my team are very thankful for it. So and then the second part of it, um, I have spoken about these guys actually in the past. Uh, they're a Ukrainian uh, company called Mule Carts. Um, one of our previous guests, LS, uh, introduced me to them years ago, and I've just had my first order um, turn up. And it again, it's it's odd, it's odd stuff because it, you know, it makes a good noise. It sounds like a good drum. So for our but, listeners, it's a, it's a, it looks like a big inbox tray, but it's with a, a super clamp attached to it. Yeah, and with it's a nice it's, felt bottom. It's a really nicely built utility tray, right? Mm. And you can have this extra tray, extra side tray that you can kind of bolt on, um, and it's got this perfect mount uh, on the bottom of it that um, bolts onto the bottom of the tray and then bolts onto a, a, a super clamp bolts onto the tray and the tray then bolts onto the super clamp so it's really solid and secure and then it's got this nice little bit underneath the super clamp this arc here which is very yeah. hard to show you because of how i've got it orientated the, the arc here which then rests up against the stand which prevents the tray from bending from dipping down yeah, yeah. So it's a really nice little bit of kit, and it's foam-lined. Um, but I don't know if you guys are ever on set, and you need somewhere to chuck your wallet, your keys, your phone, your you know little notepad or your iPad or or anything that you're trying to um, just bits and pieces, drinks, yeah. sweets, crisps. I mean, we I I have two of these. I bought two of them, um, and I, they get full straight away um, with sweets. Of, Mainly just full, full of jelly babies. Mainly gummies, yeah. Mainly gummy sweets, um, but they they are really good value. They're really nicely finished. Uh, they're like mm. black anodized aluminium. They're super strong. I've knocked them about a lot, and yeah, I really I really really like them. Um, and the guys who run the company are really nice. So um, you know what's what's not to like really. Um, it's off to them running a company out of Ukraine, given everything that's going on there. Yeah, so I think they, I don't know quite how they do it, but they end up shipping the stuff. It comes via Pol uh, Poland. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's amazing how quick they were able to get it to me. It did take a, a you know, a week or two. Um, but, you know, given everything that's going on, I was yeah. super impressed. And they were really on it with the, with the comms and stuff like that. So, you know, more I, power I mean to them. Yeah, I've, that's a week is nothing really. You know, obviously we're so used to kind of having stuff done next day with mm. with you know things like Amazon. But um, you know, I I've had something that I had I ordered in December. It's one of my pet hates. You order something online, it says it's in stock, and then it turns out it's not in stock. Oh. Um, but you've already paid for it. Uh, it is what I ordered at end of December. It still hasn't turned out. We're now in mid Feb. No, wow. early Feb. Early Feb. Or late Jan, depending on when you want to believe that we record these. <laughs> but that's um, that's what. What have you ordered? It's a uh, life size cutout of me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a Leatherman. Not that I already own a Leatherman Wave, which is mm -hmm. a great tool for having on set, actually, because of the bit kits that they sell with them. 
It's a um, it's a Leatherman Signal, which is a bit more kind Signal. of designed for kind of camping and outdoors use. It's got oh, okay. So has it got like of, a slightly, slightly longer, different tool setup and a slightly longer knife? Uh, I don't think the blade's any longer. It's more like it has a ferro rod uh, built into it. I think oh, what, it's got. Oh, what? Sorry. A ferro rod, like a fire starter. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, some little bits and bobs and it's kind of designed with a with an inbuilt clip so you can kind of carabiner it onto something they're great oh, little tools nice. okay um how useful yeah. for set well still good because you can still use a bit kit with it and the bit kit's the most important thing on them for me like more that's the tool i use more than anything else would probably be the scissors and the bit kit right, um okay. the bit kit being that you can obviously put in uh, various hex heads allen key yep. heads screwdriver heads whatever so because um, I, I my, have some of my base plates are kind of Allen key tightening, so that's something that's just being used all the time. Okay, I have this one, so and it's it's going to be very hard to see. We shoot these in black and white. It is the Leatherman Surge, and it is in black oxide finish. Um, but I find this one, and yeah, you're right with the bit kit. If I'm right, they just slot into here, which is not going to focus, and then you can just pop the bit kit in there and then use it i mean i actually lost my bit kit so leatherman if you're listening um there's a photographer who desperately needs a replacement bit kit there you go that that head is great as well the micro mm -hmm. screwdriver the fact mm -hmm. that they have one of those on it makes it actually a super useful tool but i've got the same as you black ops size i mean it's just cool isn't it like it's just I, I would say one of the coolest my wife bought this for me when we first got together and the surge, she had to import it from the States because the surge didn't come to the UK originally. And this was before Leatherman became, I mean, it shows my age. This is before Leatherman became like the name in multi-tools. Mm. And so she imported this thing from the States and it is like, it's one of my favorite things I own. This um, is the, mine's the Wave, which is actually slightly smaller, which I would, so I've got, I've got this surge. I've got a mate surge who left it here about two years ago, and I've been mm -hmm. holding on to it from ever since. So I haven't actually used it myself because <laughs> it's not mine. But they are um, big they, and heavy, they, comparatively to the wave. a lot bigger. Yeah, mm. and and much heavier. The wave mm. is a you know my dad actually has the wave, and it's a really it's a really nice bit of kit. I would probably recommend the wave over the surge because it's just slightly smaller and lighter. I can show you both next to one another. There you go. So for me, just having that one on set, it's probably mm -hmm. about a centimetre shorter and maybe half a, you know, five mil, maybe eight mil, slightly narrower. And the but difference yeah, in um, weight, though. The different weight, yeah. Mm. Anyway. They're anyway, that's a, that's a very video-heavy, sorry. Yeah, we're not, sorry. We're not, they're not always going to be like this. No, 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 just no. Just we're overexcited that we've got. We are overexcited, and we're obviously just still playing with the medium. Um mm. But yeah, yeah no, what it's, well, what else, what, Greg? What else? What else? I, let me tell you about my week. Two weeks, okay. actually, since we since we last recorded one of these. Um, I have been running a QNAP server, uh, NAS drive, for just over two years. Mm. And it has a two-year warranty. Uh, and three weeks after the warranty expired, it died. And obviously, you suddenly go, oh, wow, oh, God, uh, is all my backup? safe is all the data there cool thing about qnap uh nas drives is you can buy a replacement chassis take all the drives out put them in in the exact same order and mm. start the drive up and it is like nothing ever happened mm. apart from 
That unit then blew up six hours after me plugging in and starting it all up. And I was just like, at this, at this point... Maybe your content is just too hot to handle, Tom. <laughs> well, quite, yeah, quite. But at, at this point, I just thought, you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm a bit bored of running this NAS server. It's two units have failed in like a week. This is getting ridiculous. Um, so I kind of took a really long, hard look at my data storage. Mm. And I was kind of going, well, actually, I've got stuff on here from 2004. No one ever asks me for... And, and if they do, it's kind of like once in a blue moon... Um, kind of request. So I feel like keeping all this stuff active is a waste of hard drive space and a waste of electricity because you're spinning these drives um, all the time. And also, bluntly, you know, let's talk about cost. It's kind of expensive to maintain loads of running drives and spinning drives all the time because not only do I have, you know, I have a nice SanDisk uh, Professional 8-bay thing, which is really nice and fast, but then because I've got so much stored on it, I have to have I in the office I had the QNAP NAS which mm. then had eight drives in it as well and then I had 12 or 13 spinning disks in my offsite backup and I'm kind of going okay fine this is all okay at the moment but and the thing I do when I buy a spinning drive is I have a little Dymo label printer um mm. and I I label everything and I label the drive with when I bought it and where I bought it from. So whenever I'm kind of doing a moment like this where I'm kind of like, you know, trying to figure out whether the, um, you know, trying to um, figure out what to do from a storage point of view or things like that, I can look at the drive and just say, okay, well, this drive is two years old. It's still got loads of life left in it. Or this drive mm. is five years old. I could do with replacing it. And what happened, the same time the servers blew up, I pulled the hard drives out and went, oh, these hard drives are now five years old. And then I went over to my offsite and I went, oh God, so most of these drives are five years old as well. So they're all out of warranty. And with spinning disks, it's not, uh, it's not kind of if they'll fail, it's when. They're not, you know, there's such a delicate medium really at the end of the day that mm. they'll always fail at some point. And I was just like, okay, right, I need to figure out a long-term solid way of backing this stuff up. So I have officially now moved my on-site and off-site backups to LTO tape. Yes. Which, which is not which, to be confused with cassette tape. No. Can you imagine? I would I would love it. I mean, you know, there's old TDK nineties. No, but LTO tape, if I show you know, the video listeners that this now, this drive here, that is what, seven centimeters by seven centimeters by two centimeters deep, now can store eighteen terabytes on this. You know this isn't tape. gonna age well. <laughs> No, I know, I know, I know. It's like somebody showing a compact flash card and showing, and I can get six megabytes look on at this. this new technology. <laughs> fast forward twenty years, it's like look at this old guy talking about a tape. No, this the the, the great thing about tape is that. So I, I kind of um, did a load of research, and I I have gone with Simply, who make the the tape drive, uh, yeah. and I'm using Archiware, the software. Um, and they, they interface in a really nice way, everything works, and I've been doing the backups. Now, you'll hear a lot about LTO tape in the next few years, because LTO 9's come out, and it's got this crazy 18 terabyte capacity. It's going to start making a lot of sense for loads of people like us to just mm. be offloading all this dead data that we're just storing, and it's costing a lot to store. So I, at some point now, would like to get my archive down to last year and the current active year 
and that that would be sorry not my archive that would be my working drive that yeah. i could have on a 32 terabyte uh raid right mm. so that would be a really nice thing because that's less drives less cost less electricity because you you know we're running less drives and you're not running a nas so you're not running them 24 hours a day so from a cost mm. point of view and then you're not having to constantly refresh the drives what does the tape the, actually explain the t- what does it like look like the, what's it actually writing it onto is it well, I can't, I can't actually show you because the tapes are completely sealed. No, Tom, come thing... on, it's video. I want you to get a hammer and open that thing up. <laughs> Mate, they're two hundred quid a tape. I'm not, I'm not getting, I'm not taking a hammer to these. <laughs> so you have a little barcode on the on the spine of it, and then it's just, yep. a, it's just a, pla- a like a green oh, plastic. Hold that up a bit more so it focuses. It's just a green plastic case. Okay. With, with nothing really. Um, yeah. Nothing really to talk about. It's just a green plastic. It looks case. like an old. Uh... Game, Game Boy kind of cassette, but bigger. Yeah, do you know what? This, that's not far off exactly what it kind of feels like. That's aging um, me. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's, it's really, it's really a. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really pleased. But I kind of want to temper any expectations of it. It, it does take a long time to do the initial backups. You know, filling yeah. these 18 terabyte tapes, and the reason is. And what I, I got frustrated when I first started using it, but now I understand the benefit of it. And now I'm like, this thing's amazing. Um, is it checksum verifies every bit of data that it's copied to the drive. So when it copies the the, the software arcuer, when it copies the initial bit of data over, sorry, this is getting really boring and techy. I'll, I'll speed it up. When the software copies it over onto the tape, it creates a hash. And mm-hmm. then when it's finished copying all the data, it then copies each file back to the computer generates another hash to make sure they match and then if they match then the file is good and it's mm-hmm. it's about as a good copy that's uncorrupted and it's it's a complete copy um and then when you finish with those tapes like this is my this is my 2022 on-site drive and so that I, go on sorry the actual connection and interface between the computer and the the disc itself, not the tape, Thund- the disc that reads. Thunderbolt 3. Thunderbolt 3. So when you go in and you say, right, I want to go back to 2012 and access this shoot, it's yep. Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt 3 speeds of accessibility. No, so you, so basically what uh, when you're talking about data, your data chain is always as slow as the slowest link in the chain, right? Right. And so the tape drive, that I've, I've been seeing speeds of up to 400 megasecond read and write uh, off, well, write technically, to the drive. Um, so, you know, and I, I'm, it gives you, the ArcuWare software gives you a nice little breakdown of your average data rates, and it'll tell you that you're averaging about 22 terabytes a day at this rate. Um, so but would you be able to just access it? I'm sorry, I'm being an idiot, but that's my role on no, this No, no, not an idiot at all. Um, <laughs> it, is it like accessible through Finder? You go on no. and you just like log... No, it's got not. Got to use the software. So, so you no, you don't. It's, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I'll try and be really, really um, quick with it because it's quite a long, drawn out subject. With tape, it's a linear file. Uh, it's a it's a linear file system. So, because the tape is just forever just being wound in the machine, it appends yeah. data to the end of the tape or the end right. of data marker. Technically, um, so what happens there is. Uh, when you use a bit of software, the software creates a log. Um, and so you can then restore files from the uh, from the software, but you can then browse it in the software like it was mounted in the Finder sort of thing in a, in a slightly more basic way. 
and then you can mm. just say like i'd like to restore either the whole tape or these files or these folders um and then you can do that and the reason i use arcuware is that it does incremental backups so there's a there's a few other bits of software available, but the one for me is going to be Arcuware because I can set it to do uh, the incremental backups, and then that just appends the new data onto the end. But then when you go into the restore tab on it, for example, it will just show all the all the fi the file structure how you would expect to see it, basically. Okay, I I think is I dip into my archive all the time for edits and for treatments and stuff, so I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know. I uh, will we'll probably re we'll re go back over this topic at another time. I think when we've got a bit more time. Yeah, I think so. It's 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 a super interesting one. I mean, for for me, I've uh, my career has come in multiple stages. So I used to be uh, a music photographer, and I mean that stopped when I stopped. I stopped shooting music, for, like t uh, 2013, 14, kind of so a while back. So everything pre-2015 isn't really of any use to me. Yeah. Um, I might every now and then get a request, but at that point I'll just pop the tape in and I'll find the file um, mm. as opposed to just having all this stuff just taking up space. It just doesn't see much point. Um, yeah. And also, for example, we do the one of the big things for me is that when we're doing video projects, I can now archive all the video files I don't have to go through and be selective and clear out the space by getting rid of a few or anything like that. I can just whack it, whack it all on a tape and then just say, right, that is nice and secure. That's all good. Um, so that is all permanently backed up. And there's also another thing to offer clients. You know, I can now offer secure long-term data storage by mm. backing all their data up to a, their own tape. Mm. So it's, you know, there's, it's horses for courses because it's not going to suit everyone. But right. I just found that the accumulation of data over the course of my career has been quite, you know, monumental, really. I've got yeah. so much data to store, and I'm a bit loath to get rid of anything because, you know, I don't, I don't really yeah. like going through and being like, oh, that shoot's not important. Cause I like no, because you never shoot. know. It might, it, it, might be, uh, it might be valuable to train AI in the future. <laughs> well, well, quite, yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, so that's that's where that's where I'm at. So I'm I'm having a lovely time kind of backing up all these tapes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um if you're still with us after that. Um Sorry, that was that was quite that was quite a drawn out. No, it Sorry. wasn't drawn out. It was good. It was good. Um it's something I know nothing about. So uh I'm interested well, to learn about it, but it's quite it's quite a complex topic, but when it's set up uh, it just uh, works brilliantly. Uh, listeners so... know that you love your data. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, Mr. Beta Max. Um, <laughs> so, shall we? Shall we jump? In? I know we've got quite a good and well, not lengthy, but you know, good good amount of time episode today with Sophia Spring. Mm -hmm. um, well, we cover all sorts of topics with Sophia, but it's definitely. Uh, I think it'll be a nice listen for everyone. Um, we also wanted to. I mean, if you're still with us, we wanted to announce that we also have a Patreon now. So we finally got around to doing it. <laughs> um so if if you feel like what we're doing is worth um the you know the price of half a pint these days it's <laughs> fading yep. um, away okay well maybe a weatherspoon's pint actually we're basically I, I, looking I, I wouldn't know <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're basically looking to build uh, our patreon subscribers for 3.99 a month we are offering access to um 
a private WhatsApp group, which will allow you to contact us directly, but also be part of kind of a chat community that will be around the podcast, but also with your questions, your suggestions for the show, just generally kind of like a, a, a nice way to actually meet other listeners, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and also um, as our long promised but soon to be with us socials um we are in the process of organizing one which is going to be in a pub in london most likely um in the next couple of months and um if you join onto our patron and you get this link to the private whatsapp group you'll get information about that when it when it finally gets uh blocked into the diary it's going to be on a saturday night and um yeah we're looking forward to actually meeting some of our listeners. Mm. So, yeah, if you want to go along and subscribe to our Patreon, um, we will be building other tiers and putting out further content and kind of videos and stuff down the line. But at the moment, that's what it involves. Um, and we'd we'd love your support if you think it's worth your time and money. Well, Greg, Greg's gone in there with the soft sell, and now I'm coming in with a hard sell. Um, you know, <laughs> $3.99... It, I hate the fact that everything is subscription now. So apologies. We're obviously still going to keep the show uh, as as in the current format. Uh, so you, it's free to listen to, and you know you guys can still get hopefully tons and tons of knowledge uh, from it and from our guests. Um, but if you feel that we've helped you, or it's been you know beneficial to listen to, or even if you've just thought, oh, that's a great idea. Three ninety nine. Even if you do it just like as a one off, or something, it would be it would be massively appreciated. Mainly because I am desperate to buy Greg that new microphone, and <laughs> honestly, that can only benefit you guys as well. <laughs> so. What are you trying to say? <laughs> so if if anyway, if you do want to sign up, um, it's quite easy to find us. We are www.patreon.com forward slash expose negative. Um, you can go there, find the page, and um, sign up. But without well, further ado, shall we jump into Sophia's episode? Absolutely. Let's go. On today's show, we have the amazing Sophia Spring, who is a just an unbelievably talented portrait photographer. She's really known for her amazing group setups. Her colouring's fantastic. Her lighting's beautiful. And all round, uh, I'm a big fan of her work. You can probably tell by the fact that I've just kind of completely overgone on the intro, but she really is that good. Uh, Sophia, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast, as you know, so uh, it feels pretty exciting. I can't believe yeah I can't believe it we were chatting before we came on air and uh, came on air started recording hit the record button and uh, yeah you've listened to it from from you must be one of our not oldest listeners because that doesn't sound right but you must be one of our our longest listeners yeah and I found it enormously comforting during um the pandemic to you know be able to listen to you chat away and you've got such an amazing chemistry and I just I love what you're doing you've got brilliant guests so oh, yeah I feel bless- really honored to be on the show Bless you. Oh, I just get the feeling this is just going to be a lovely recording, isn't it? It's just going to like, just be one big loving. This is going to be great. Well, honestly, thank you. Thank you to, to, for, for listening. I, I appreciate it. Well, look, for the people that maybe are listening who don't know, do you want to give uh, us a little bit of background about who you are, what you do, I mean, and, and kind of how you, how you kind of found your way and got into it? 
Um, so there's probably a lot of listeners out there that don't know who I am, but I am a predominantly a portrait photographer um, and I shoot a lot for um, the weekend supplements. I'd say those are my main clients, things like the Observer magazine, the Sunday Times magazine, the Guardian, people like that. Um, and uh, I've kind of been doing that the last few years. And then I also have some commercial clients and I also work on my own projects. I um brought out a book last year as well so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment and um, in terms of where I started um, I'm afraid it's not a brilliantly exciting story but I am I think I always loved taking photos as a child I had a um, very um, keen amateur um, photographer who was our PE teacher at school and she set up a dark room so I spent many happy hours in the dark room developing my photos um, but I was never, I never knew any other photographers. I didn't really think that that was a career option that I could have. So I went to university instead and started sociology and politics. And it was when I was there that I thought more about photography as a career that I wanted to pursue. So after my degree, I went to LCC and did a year long diploma, um, which was, it was yeah, it was an all right diploma. It was um, it was billed as a, um, a a diploma in professional photographic practice. So the idea was you go and then you come out and you can be a photographer. Unfortunately, right. there was a year of that out of seventy people in the year, only three of us are still working photographers today, and the okay. diploma doesn't exist anymore because it is such a competitive industry. You can't really <laughs> doing you know set you know promising people something that's not really going to happen. So. After um, that, I uh, went out and started trying to assist, and um, I did that for about 18 months. And the reason that I did it for quite a short amount of time was because I actually found it really hard to get assisting work. And I mm. actually think this is a, quite a big problem in the industry, especially for women at, at entry level, is actually getting those assisting jobs, you know, um, I don't know if you know the statistic, but 70% of photography graduates are women and only 13% of working photographers are women. So 13, most, one, one, three. One, three, wow. one, three. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that insane? That's, that is mad. That is yeah. really, wow. That is so that's some, actually the, quite shocking. So something's happening when these photography graduates leave, you know, mm. that they're, they're, you know, hitting lots of um, kind of hurdles and then not progressing to a career in photography. And that's kind of what I found. I mean, I don't know about you personally, but I would imagine that most of your assistants are men. I don't know. Am I actually no? Not not for me. No, I've just oh. come off a, a five day commercial job uh, using a female team, uh, oh, amazing, and, I, and I, I I try and do it as as much as I can. There there are, you know, and I and I do not mean this to sound sexist. Yeah. There are jobs where unfortunately I do need people my size because we've you know we've got 40 50 60 kilo things going up overhead i know and i and i and i need people mainly who for the height weirdly I know. Um, and, 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 I, and i'm guilty of that as well there are physical limitations about using female assistance but i think this is the problem that when you get these female photography graduates coming out of university and they're sending their cvs to the you know what is it 87 percent of male photographers working out there they're not always getting those jobs and that's kind of certainly what I found when I was assisting. I was always coming along as an unpaid second assistant, mm -hmm, you know, which mm -hmm. isn't sustainable, really. So I was having to work yeah. in a pub, 
you know, five, six nights a week and then doing sure. unpaid assisting in in the daytime. And it just really wasn't sustainable for me. And after the, about 18 months, I thought, oh, yeah, sorry, Greg, carry on. No, no, no. I was just saying, well, I think part p- part of the issue is, is um, with fees. So in general, within the industry, I mean, f- actually, especially doing editorial work, it's actually quite difficult to get assistance on board, especially more than and one. Um, purely because you'd be giving most of your percentage of your fee away if you were to pay your assistant fairly. Uh, I think in London, if you compare, you know, people always think that London's got kind of a big, big photography scene, and it certainly has compared comparatively with the UK. But if you compared London with New York or LA, um, the whole kind of uh, industry is is so much smaller. And actually using assistance is tougher because there's fewer jobs where you're going to need or have the budget to get a proper team in um, comparatively, um, I think, anyway. No, I, I t- totally agree. There are photographers I speak to, and, and they say, you know, they come up to me and say, oh, how do you make money on these um, on these smaller jobs? And I go, well, you know, I'm, I know they're smaller jobs, so it's me, a camera, and a camera bag, like a, and a lighting bag, and I try and keep everything as, as minimal as possible. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, wh- why do you say that? And they're like, oh, well, I, I like bringing out my two assistants, my digi, you know, probably a, a runner maybe. And I'm like, what? On a, you're losing your fee. It's costing you hundreds of pounds to do this. Mm. Um, and I know some some have a very good view on it that it's kind of like a marketing effort because they're paying, they're almost kind of taking some money from their commercial projects to fund and make this editorial stuff as, as good as they can. Um, but on the, on the flip side of that, there are some people who now are kind of so entrenched, uh, with working with a big crew that they can't kind of just go out and grab like a stand bag or something like that. But again, that's not every photographer, obviously everyone's different. I mean, I think if you're going to make a living in editorial photography, you have to have a skeleton team. So I, the most sheets bring on one assistant and but and we're both kind of doing digi and lighting together sure. and it's just like a collaborative yeah. effort but yeah certainly don't have a budget for a digi and an assistant on shoots um, i i would love to 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 quickly go back to actually using female assistants and right. and kind of say actually i love working with female assistants there's a very very different vibe that a a, a mixed sex team brings to a shoot um yeah. and I, I i will quite often now depending on the, the subject and who i'm photographing or the client and, and i will choose how i sex the team it, it sounds like a weird it sounds like a weird phrase no, but, I, but i do i do exactly the same as well yeah so kind of when you when you know it it's gonna be that kind of atmosphere you know i might bring in just a male team but actually i love working with female assistants they bring a real um for me they bring a real leveling dynamic uh to my team and so it never gets too blokey or like etc and i honestly it's so much more pleasant for for me for the client for the for the models involved no absolutely and i also think if you're photographing women they want to be represented on set it's very overwhelming Mm. for a woman if she's not that used to having her photograph taken to then be surrounded with like you know three or four men that she's never Mm -hmm. met before you know, mm-hmm. kind of staring at her. So I think, you know, if we are going to put a message out to your listeners and there are working photographers out there and they are men, do use women as much as you can because we need to create more equality within the industry, for sure. 
Absolutely, mm. yeah, and I, I think it's a speaking as someone who's done it a fair bit. I, th- I th- honestly, I think it's great. The 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 dynamic uh, of your team changes, and I, honestly, it makes for a way more pleasant, uh, way more pleasant atmosphere. And it's I, you know, I I love it. So I, do, I try and do it as much as I can. That's amazing, Tom. And also, what you're doing is you're encouraging the next generation of female photographers as well. So they're learning oh, from of you. Course. And well, which it, is amazing. I think, especially, I'm I'm ultra aware having now had a daughter. I'm like right, okay. It's it's yeah. on it's on me. I I have to make that. You know, I can't just sit by and let the F twenty two. Uh, just you know, I mean, obviously they do a load of good work, but like, unless people like me are doing the, you yeah. know, making the change. Right. And I'm not saying that they're not. Oh God, that sounded that sounded that sounded terrible. But you know what I mean. They're they're doing amazing work. But unless we all step up and actually make the changes that we we can make. You know, I can't become a uh, well, oh, Jesus Christ, right? This that sounds terrible. I I I'm a straight white male. <laughs> I'm a straight white male, right? This is I, no, this is a conversation I, I think Tom, that needs to I, be had, right? I I take, think I'm a yeah. straight. Can I take the spade off you? Since you stop you, digging. Well, can, can I? Can I quickly? <laughs> can I just quickly finish? No, I I I'm not. I'm very comfortable with uh with where I am, but I do feel that I can the only way that I can really make a difference is by, you know, having a female team or kind of a partial female team. And you've got to be trying to bring us hundred percent. What I'm trying to say in my absolutely ham fisted way of doing it is diversity is a great thing. And I'm trying to do it as much on my team as possible, because I feel that when you are in a commissioning role and you are able to hire who you want, you should be able to make the choices that you feel ethically might be, good to help forward uh the the future of photography because the thing is i i would love for my daughter to to grow up uh and i want her to feel like she can do anything and if she wants to go and be a photographer or she wants to go and be an assistant i want there to be plenty of opportunities there for her to do it when she gets to that point i think that's pretty tom sorry that was such a shit such a shit way of saying it i'm so (laughs) sorry anyway long story short it's a good thing yeah exactly agrees Sophia, what's your approach? I mean, do you get approached a lot by assistants and people wanting to assist you? And if so, what do you um, do about that? Because obviously, I, you know, we've both, myself and Tom, have both kind of had people emailing us and wanting to come in and assist. And sometimes it's just just not the opportunities for people. But I do try and meet up with people when I can. Um, do you have that much? Do you get a lot of emails off people who are looking to assist? And do you think that sometimes as well, there's, you know, you said you struggled to find assisting work when you came out of university. Do you think that to Um, some degree that's because universities give off the sense that everyone who's a photographer has an assistant? And the reality is that actually, like we were saying earlier, sometimes you just work with skeleton crews. Sometimes you go solo depending on the job and depending on the fees involved. Um, so which question should I answer first? So the first one is that, um, uh, you were asking about, um, whether, uh, people, um, email me about assisting and they mm. do get in touch. Um, and I have a folder, um, where I keep all their emails and I try and respond to everybody. Um, and generally now don't meet up for a coffee with everybody because this is quite time consuming, you know, mm. like my time is really, really precious. Um, so what I'll do is if I like the sound of them an email and they've got a little bit of experience or they just, you know, there's something about them that I like, I might call them up, have a little chat and then maybe get them along on a trial shoot on a very like low pressure shoot. 
there'd be mm. a shoot that I could have potentially done by myself and then they can mm-hmm. come along on that. And I honestly think that's the best way to kind yeah. of trial them. And I'm doing that increasingly more. And I, and unfortunately, I have to increasingly more because I've got two first assistants who are absolutely adore. But, you know, I, in the last few years, I'm not, I'm not paying them any more than I did when they started out with me because I can't because of editorial rates. And um, and I think they only work with me because we get on really well. But the, the rates that I'm paying them, they can, you know, get four or five times that when they're doing kind of commercial jobs, which they, you know, they assist other photographers too. So I actually do have to use people that are relatively inexperienced in order to justify paying them those quite small small fees. Mm. I don't know if you find the same as well, but it is kind of embarrassing going to like, you know, a very experienced assistant and being like, I've got X amount for this, for this editorial shoot. And it's, you know, a third of what mm. they can get elsewhere. It- it is it is a little tricky. I mean, I, I have I have quite a close close knit team. I'm sure as 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 we all do, and I, I've got the people that I really love working with. And if if I can, I'll I'll work with them, you know, every single day if I can. But there, and a, a lot of the time, the rates are not ideal. But when when the rates are low, I then I'm able to make sure I look after them on the bigger commercial stuff. Exactly. And so it basically, if you look at it on a job by job sometimes it's lower sometimes it's higher but over a year I'd like to think I pay quite well and also I pay absolutely on time an assistant will not wait for more than 36 hours for an invoice to be paid that's pretty Tom I don't do 30 I don't do 30 days I do 30 hours because it's just like my my contract with you is done like I know we've talked about this in the in the past but like my contract with the assistant we're, we're good like you know you're not waiting for the client to pay me you know, I was talking with a with an amazing photographer, a guy called uh, Tom. Uh, it was a private conversation, so I probably shouldn't. His name was Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I've not I've not done that well. Anyway, Tom, sorry, I, I'm going to talk about this. We were just talking about how it's a it's just a respect thing. You yeah. know, they they respect us to be able to. You know, our, an assistant isn't just there to to help. An assistant is there if if things go south. I need to be able to turn around to my assistants or my digi or whatever and just be like help you know and they they, with their masses of experience and hopefully the fact that they like working with me sam and james and everyone else i use i I really hope that is the case Uh, and hopefully then they'll be able to turn around and and save the day but then again that's the i guess that's the issue then because the guys that you're using and the guys that we have to bring out on the smaller editorials they can then use that experience because they deserve the higher rates and then they kind of go off and they do that and then we're we're kind of trying to find people it's 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 a bit tricky i've also found sorry to keep going on i've also found that with the cost of living crisis a lot of assistants are putting their rates up and oh, i'm yeah, kind of absolutely. going they're putting their guys. rates up but they're putting their rates up and we're our rates have not gone up in 10 years yeah and and, least, and yeah. for me i at least well yeah and I, and I and i'm struggling because i've I, with a, some of my clients i have fixed rates that have been agreed on a yearly basis and so these guys are now so i'm then having to pay 50 quid out of my fee to just kind of top their fee up to what they're asking for and the the trouble is without being funny i i know how expensive everything is you know the cost right. of living at the moment is just crazy so i totally get why the why the rates are going up but i'm hoping that our rates go up at, at some other point as well I'm I well it de- depends what field you're looking at you know so I do not I've been working with the Guardian it was the Guardian weekend and it's now the Guardian Saturday 
Mm-hmm. And when I was, you know, assisting years ago, 15 years ago, the rate was um, pretty much the same it is today, but you used to be able to go up lunch after your shoot. You know, they, you used to be able to expense everything. And so that was 15 years ago. And the other day we all got a pay rise, but the pay rise was £8.50 per shoot. £8.50, which is just, I mean, it's just like a slap oh. in the face, right? <laughs> well, that's a sandwich now. <laughs> yeah, it's a right? Mac- McDonald's so, at least they're covering yeah, At least they're covering part, part of lunch. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I would never dream of giving them my, you know, expensing my lunch now on editorial shoots. Yeah. It just doesn't, you no, know, that's... if I'm traveling it... out of London, maybe a sandwich, but. It is, that's, it is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah. but on the flip side of that, we get access to amazing people. So, exactly you know it's it's i I, to, I do totally get it and, and i'm not and, saying that and, we and, should and work also, for free and i'm i'm not complaining well, i am complaining but i love it <laughs> i absolutely I, I absolutely love editorial portrait photography the access it gives me the type of people i get to meet i mm-hmm. i absolutely love it so i will keep doing it as long as i can afford to do it yeah i just want to jump back a little bit Sophia, to you, you talked about kind of doing your diploma and coming out of of university and assisting. Are there are there anything? Is there anything you know that you wish you'd kind of known then, like that you know now? Is there some areas of the industry that you know you've you were? I don't know. You felt like you didn't you get taught about enough. Absolutely. So. I did like lots of extremely naive things. Like I remember, you know, carefully printing off, you know, various portraits and, you know, putting them in a nice kind of folder and then sending them off in an envelope with a handwritten letter to picture editors in the vain hope that this would secure me a meeting. And I just Mm. know that those photographs went straight in the bin. Um, so wasting my time doing things like that. I mean, maybe it would work for some people. Maybe the portraits that I was sending out weren't that good. But I spent a lot of time approaching picture editors, I think, before I was ready. And actually what I should yeah. have done is spend that time shooting and developing my style. Um, yeah. So that, that, there would have been... Um, it's hard to that, know, though, isn't it? Because and, I mean, some of some yeah. of those approaches that you made might well have have put you on somebody's radar, and they kept an eye on you. And and I've met picture editors that, you know, they might not have given you a job that year, but two years down the line, you get a job, and you're like, oh, where's this come from? And then you turn out that you know they've just been keeping an eye on you from afar. Yeah, that actually, they may well have done. I, I actually can't even remember who I sent those pictures to. So they may well be people that I'm commissioning now. But it's certainly in terms of. Um, getting work immediately that that didn't happen and maybe that approach would work for certain people but I think you know what I should have done is just spent more time just shooting and developing my style instead of trying to get the work straight away and then Mm. um, other things that I uh, would wish I'd known is well that I think that photography is not life and death you know what we're doing and I think I took it all way too seriously when I was younger. And it's not so that I don't take it seriously now. You know, I always try my hardest to get the best on a shoot. And um, and I love it. But the kind of level of stress that I would take on before a shoot, and I would get extremely nervous. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, I think I've now realized that, you know, it, it's 
it's not life and death. It's not brain surgery. It's there to be enjoyed. And I've got mm. to try and learn to enjoy, enjoy my sheets a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, the other thing I, um, kind of wish I'd known sooner is, well, it's something that I'm applying to my, the way I take on jobs now is I only take on jobs if it falls into one of three categories. If it falls into more of those categories, it's fine. But those categories are, um, you know, is it going to be, you know, a portfolio worthy job? So am I going to be able to get a really amazing image from this shoot that I could put in my portfolio? Um, the second is financial. So if it's not going to be a job that where I'm going to get some, you know, an amazing portfolio worthy image out of, is it going to, you know, pay very well, in which case I'll take it. And mm-hmm. the third is if it doesn't fall into either of those categories, will I just have fun on it? So it might not pay brilliantly and it may not be a portfolio worthy shoot. But if I know that I'm going to have a really good time on the shoot and it's going to be fun and I'm going to be working with interesting people, then I'll take it on. And if, you know, a job comes in and it doesn't fall into one of those three categories now, I don't take it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's a fantastic way of doing it. Obviously, you're known for your portrait work and you've you've shot, you know, all sorts of characters over the years, quite a few celebrities, um, but also kind of, uh, you know, these these supplement photos, you said like Sunday supplement photos, which having done them myself, and I know Tom's done that kind of work before as well, it can be very, um, it's it's challenging. It's interesting and challenging. Um, but do you, is what is it that you kind of bring to your shoot? How much research do you do on a sitter before you kind of turn up? Um, do you find, how do you find that balance and that dynamic when you're shooting with, with people and taking portraits in terms of kind of chatting and directing and all of that stuff? Just talk us through kind of a typical, typical job. So I used to do a lot of research on the individual before I was photographing them. So I would like maybe listen to their audio book if they'd written a book or listen to all their podcasts, read all their interviews. And actually I've now found that's a bit of a hindrance because you come to the shoot with this, with, with too much knowledge about the person. So mm-hmm. you're not actually meeting them in a fresh and spontaneous way. And I realized that actually knowing all that stuff about the subject doesn't mean that I get a better portrait at the end of the day. So now, obviously, you know, I will do, I'll research the basics. So, you know, what their profession is, you know, the basics. But then it means when I meet them on the day, I can have a conversation with them without knowing all the answers already. And it mm-hmm. just feels much more organic and spontaneous and like two people having a, you know, authentic interaction instead of me secretly knowing, you know, what their children are called and where they live and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so now instead of doing kind of that kind of research, I'll just do more image-based research. So ahead of the shoot, I will create a mood board and it will be less about mood and tone because I think my mood and tone is pretty much consistent throughout all my work. So I'm not trying to copy anyone else's mood or tone, but it will be very much um, a series of poses that I want to get people into because, you know, especially if you're shooting in a studio and you're faced with a stool in a white cove mm. you know it can be really daunting about how you get some something nice and intimate and beautiful out, out of that so if you've got a mood board with poses then if you're feeling a bit stuck for ideas you can show it to the person that you're shooting and you can look at it together and kind of have a bit of a collaborative talk about where you mm-hmm. want to go with the poses and things like that so that's the thing that i felt found most 
helpful. Mm. And then, uh, Greg, what else did you ask? I can't remember now. <laughs> well, I guess it's always interesting finding that balance between directing and talking and holding a conversation with a sitter. I, well, I sometimes find that I kind of is. just get wrapped up in the conversation, especially if it's a really interesting person. And then you kind of well, feel a little bit like, oh, crap, I've got to, I've got to focus on the pictures. But actually, I'm really enjoying this conversation. It's quite interesting. It's finding yeah, that so balance quite well, a lot I'll, of the time, keeping your head kind of in both both games. Of course. So what I'll um, generally do is just try and talk to the person a bit before we have, you know, before we start shooting. Um, mm. I'll say, you know, if we, we're on location or um, if we're on location, then I'll maybe say to my um, assistant, can you just set up these lights? And then I'll chat to the person, we'll have a cup of tea. Or if we're in a studio and the person's going, getting their hair and makeup done, I'll go and sit and mm. have a bit of a chat with them before then. I'm really interested in styling, so I always like to have um, a choice in the styling of the clothes. So that can be a conversation that we have where we get to know each other a bit, where we can look through either the clothes the stylist has brought, or if I'm shooting somebody who don't, we don't have a stylist, I would have asked them to bring a selection of clothes, and then we'll go through those together. So that could be a little bit of an icebreaker as well. Um, and then also, it's slightly a case of breeding the mood as well of the person. You know, sometimes somebody will turn up, and you can just tell they don't really want to engage. They're not very interested in having a conversation. They just want to get the job done. In which case, mm. that's absolutely fine. I'll respect that. I'm not going to try and engage them in conversation. We'll just get the shoot done. And mm -hmm. other times, you know, part of the process for somebody being relaxed is chatting between takes. So we'll shoot and chat and shoot and chat. And yes, it will definitely slow up the process. But it's all about making the subject feel as comfortable as possible. But mm -hmm. generally, as a rule, I would say that I personally feel I'm not there to impose myself on the person. You know, it is about them. I'm, I don't want to dominate. And I would say my sets are quite quiet. You know, they're pretty chill. They're quite quiet. There'll be a bit of chatting, but I'm not going to, you know, force everybody into like a lot of conversation if that's not the kind of the, the mood of it, really. Yeah, I guess when you're doing the group portraits how do you find the dynamic then can be quite interesting because quite often if you've got people who have been brought together for a portrait they might not have seen each other for a while especially if they know one another they might not have seen each other for a while and then you've kind of got to play this dynamic where maybe some of them are, are chatting throughout the shoot um some you know sometimes it can be a bit unruly you can have people who are kind of talking no no i i, I so i so um I get it. I would say that I'm pretty strict when it comes to group shots because often you've got a limited amount of time with with the group. So um, I will generally go in to each position and show the person exactly how I want them to sit or stand. So, you know, if somebody's sitting on the floor, I'll show them exactly how I want them to sit on the floor. Then I'll get them in the shot and then just say, stay like that. Um, and then I'll kind of, you know, build the group really, really slowly and then I am quite strict. I just say everyone eyes to camera and um, and take as many frames as I can and mm -hmm. generally keep chatting to um, a minimum. A group shot is very different from a um, an individual portrait because an individual portrait, you're really trying to convey a particular type of emotion. You're trying to get a level of kind of intimacy there or closeness. You you know, you, you're, you want them to channel something. Whereas I say group shot, um, it's, probably less about mood or if it's about mood it's the mood that you create with the lighting and then it's about composition so you're not trying to get a certain reaction out of someone well I'm not personally you know I don't 
want people laughing in my shots. It's not really my style, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't need people to interact how... in those group shots. So it's death. Yeah. Yeah. How how complicated are your lighting setups to those kind of shots? Because obviously and do you get an opportunity most of the time, if we're saying kind of, you know, roughly how how often will you get a chance to actually recce the location? Um, for a group shot, yeah, I would definitely recce a location. Just because they come around mm-hmm. that you know, they come around so rarely group shots. Um and they are complicated. Um, and in terms of lighting and stuff, you know, if you want um, a big octop on a boom or something, you need to be able to check the ceiling height and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So recce's are really important. But, um, you know, 95% of my shoots, I don't do recce's now. I just get people, if it's the location of the person, you know, the person I'm photographing is their house, then I'll just get them to send me iPhone photos. Um, right. So, but for group shots, I, yeah, I definitely do um, recce's. And in terms of my lighting setup, um, you know, I always try and keep things relatively simple. I always, you know, my kind of brand of lighting is kind of quite directional light, but clean and soft. You know, I don't want to throw loads of light in there. I always want it to, um, uh, you know, emulate daylight as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's just about ways of doing that. But I'd say most of my group shots... Uh, yeah, I've not used more than maybe like two or three nights on on the group shots, so it's okay. Do you have a preferred um, like to get techy about it? Do you have preferred modifiers that you use or preferred techniques when you're lighting group shots? Do you tend to use bounce a lot, yes. or do you tend to so, use kind of large fill and key? So I um, don't use bounce for group shots. Um, I so the most recent one I did at um, Combafter. And that was a group shot of 20 people. I absolutely loved doing it. But we did that in uh, four groups of five. And then we comped it together. So actually, that makes the lighting setup less complicated because you're only lighting five people. And mm-hmm. for that, I um, had a set. I rented a seven-foot box. I'd never rented one before. Um, the ceilings weren't very high, so I couldn't get it up very high. And I had it um, at like a 45-degree angle to the group. And then I had a um, big umbrella next to the octa, just kind of shooting in the same direction just to give it a little bit of fill as well. Yeah, giving you fill. Um, Yeah. yeah. And then um, I did a series of um, uh, group shots for House and Garden, which was in this incredible location, and it had daylight. So for that, the way I always light, if you have daylight and you can see windows as I will always light in the direction of the daylight so if you've got the windows on the left then I always have my lights on the left and it will and then it will emulate the daylight so that's how I that's how I do it that's yeah I mean certain magazines as well they have you know you see a lot of um, pictures in mags that people do you ever get this I mean obviously a lot of your work as you said you try and emulate uh, natural light do you ever find that you get approached by people who are then baffled when you say that you need to rent or bring lighting because i've i've had it before where people look at your work and then they assume it's all natural light but actually you're like no there's there's a lot of lighting involved in that to make it look natural sometimes yeah um so actually um the first time russ the picture to the sunday times magazine came on a shoot with me i'd already done about five jobs for the magazine and I was putting up all my lights and he was really shocked. He was like, I had no idea you shot on flash. So yes, that is definitely, 
definitely what happens. But um, in terms of um, renting kit, I own four heads and I never, um, unless it's a really big job, um, I don't need more than four heads for any editorial yeah. shoot that I do. So um, renting kit isn't uh, isn't really a problem. I don't kind of yeah. face that problem. Um, but yes, people do think that I shoot natural light, but that's a like, huge compliment. To me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredibly hard, notoriously hard to emulate good natural light. So yeah. the fact that your portfolio has that, you know, is, is, a, is a great compliment, as you say. Mm. Um, so to go back to kind of, the other side of business then how do you stay on top of running your business have you bought any kind of because i've we quite often find that we speak to photographers and you know we're very um focused on the creative but actually quite often when it then comes to the business side and the day-to-day running of the business that's where some people have strengths some people have weaknesses is it an area that you've had to develop and build is it always changing is it always developing um yeah, in terms of running the business. So, you know, I do it all. I do all of my accounts and retouching. I don't do any outsourcing at all, which is probably not the most sensible thing. But actually, I like doing all of those things and I like having quite a lot of control. Mm-hmm. You know, in the future, it may be that the level of work that I'm getting, it's actually unattainable. You know, it's impossible for me to do all, mm. all of that. Um, and in terms of, I mean, something that I find invaluable, and I think you spoke about this on another podcast and you really dissed this um, app. I use Evernote, which is like just my my everything. I don't I don't think we really dissed it. I believe it I was think, um, Dan Kennedy. It. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't me. I mean, I've never used it. Um, but okay. no, he, he was not a fan of it, I think, because it hadn't been developed as much as, you know, that I remember about seven or eight years ago it was the new big thing and everyone mm. was talking about Evernote and everyone was using it and I don't think it's been kept up to date so to speak when yeah, I, I'm to very like low tech so this is it's ideal for me and for anyone that doesn't know what it is it's basically the equivalent of like um kind of post-it notes on your desktop so you know I'm a big list keeper I had every single kind of list on there so I've got a list of who I need to invoice. I keep all my accounts on there. I put all my mood boards on there. I have something called a sheet notes section. So for every shoot, I do something called sheet notes. So ahead of the shoot, I'll plot how I think I'm going to light it. What um, What's the shot list? Um, keywords I need to think about in terms of mood. And then I'll, um, I'll have the mood board there. And then it syncs up to your phone so you can access all of those notes on your phone. So I mean, that's ideal. Is amazing. That's ideal, isn't it? So yeah. you know, so you know, if I'm on location and I'm not getting my laptop out, um, then I can show somebody on my phone the mood boards, or I can go back to a previous shoot and check the shoot notes, or you know, the, the lighting setup that I did for that, and look at that mood board. Um, and then obviously, I've always got my never-ending, and never, I never managed to get through it to-do list. You know, I've just got everything on there, and it's um, yeah, it's unbelievably useful, and I wouldn't be able to run my business without it. Um, that's good to know yeah and then um i mean other than that i mean you know i i i'm still not on quickbooks which everyone seems to be i do all my invoices by hand and just chase people up myself um Mm. i'm afraid i don't have any nuggets of wisdom to offer anyone other than evernote can we just talk about like just general workflow so obviously kind of like the shoot comes in and you kind of go right well it fits into one of my three categories uh, and then what um, and then what? So obviously, I will 
find out what location we're shooting in and sometimes i'm required to find my own location so i'll go um Mm -hmm. on um, location websites and find somewhere um or i'll be tasked to find a studio or i'll be shooting at the subject's house if i'm shooting at the subject's house then i often won't go and do in brecky because it will take up half of half a day to go do it and my time is really precious so I will mm-hmm. get the subject to send me some photos on their iPhone and then I can start to think about it. If I think there are any real problems, then I can't go do a recce. And I do do recce's for um, shoots that I feel are really important where I've got a small amount of time. So, you know, if it is a celebrity and I'm shooting them in a hotel and I only have 20 minutes with them, then I absolutely have to do a recce because I need to know exactly how I'm going to shoot it when I turn up sure. on the day for the shoot. And I also need to have a backup option. You know, I've been sent on shoots where, you know, the editor wants the person shot on a rooftop. And obviously, mm-hmm. inevitably, it always starts raining the moment you turn up. So then you need, you know, a plan B. So, um, yes, I'd say for shoots where time is um, is at a minimum, then brekkies are really, really important. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, I'm trying to think how I approach things. So... Um, yeah, so I approach things from a creative way, which I've talked about, which would be my um, my mood board, thinking about how I'm going to light it, all of that stuff. And the practical stuff, you know, my kit is entirely compromised of battery-powered lights, which are, I've got mm-hmm. Profoto B1Xs and Profoto B10s. So obviously, I have to make sure everything's fully charged, otherwise I'll run into problems on the shoot. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Um, and then on the other side of things is getting myself into like the emotional headspace for a shoot as well, um, which can be just, you know, when you turn up on a shoot, it's really important that you turn up with a degree of calm and that you're kind of bringing your best self to a shoot because it's really important that the subject um, feels really comfortable on the day. So, you know, I've got two small children and I have had many a sleepless nights in the last four years and I will often, you know, wake up on the morning of a shoot and I won't have slept for longer than two hours straight because I've been up with a teething baby. But it's just very mm-hmm. important that before I get to a shoot, I kind of collect myself, I get really calm and I kind of leave that tiredness at home and just kind of bring my best self to a shoot. And then mm-hmm. um, uh, on the shoot itself, um, I, you know, for most of my shoots, uh, you know, ideally I would use a combination of like ambient and flash. Um, like I said, I've got Pro Photo heads, and my the light modifiers I most like using are Octoboxes and increasingly now umbrellas for ease of use. I'm really loving my umbrellas at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and when I'm shooting, I'll shoot tethered, which I um, was really resistant to for many years because um, it's incredibly exposing, really, to be on a shoot and. It, and everybody needs to be able to see what you're shooting uh, while you're shooting it. Um, and yeah, there was there's, a certain, there's no, yeah, there's no, there's hiding. no hiding, right? Mm. There's absolutely no hiding. But actually, what that has forced me to do is become a better photographer because I do not mm-hmm. start shooting now until I know that I've 100% got it. Because, mm. you know, the PR of the person that I'm photographing might be there, the picture editor might be there, the art director. There will be people watching over my shoulder and it has to be good while I'm shooting straight off the bat. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's forced me to be a better photographer. Before I was shooting tethered and I was shooting to the back of my camera, I'd often feel before we start the shoot, oh, I haven't quite got it, but I'm not sure how to get 
the perfect shot. So I'll just figure it out in post. Like I'll just start shooting right. and figure it out later, which is a really bad and sloppy way to do it. You just want to get everything looking really good on the day. I mean, so we've, that, we've all done it. Yeah, I mean, you kind of go into panic mode, don't you? You can't really figure out a way to get what you want. So you just kind of start shooting and are mm-hmm. relieved that nobody's looking at what you're shooting. And you're just like, well, I'll get it home <laughs> and then I'll sort it out. Whereas there's just like with, with um, shooting tethered to capture, there's just no escaping it. But actually for me, mm-hmm. what's happened is it's really been amazing because it's just sped up the whole process of editing my work because I will um, grade the test shots. So before I actually start shooting the subject, I will get a grade on that I really, really like and I'll just do that myself quite quickly mm-hmm. and that will be the grade that I work from. So I've got that basic grade to work from when I get home and do my editing and it doesn't normally deviate from that too much. Um, and also um, on a shoot, I'll sometimes just star the ones that I really like as well or get my assistant to star them as we're going along, the really good ones again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that um, minimises the editing process. And um, yeah, so that's what I do. Um in terms of processing my images so yeah and i do all, all my editing on capture and mm-hmm. then um i mean i think that's it <laughs> it's your is your laptop how's your kind of laptop in these situations so i guess a lot of your portraits you know they're relatively static in one location you might move location do you have a particular preferred way of of doing that because the thing is when you start tethering is you you kind of start anchoring yourself down do you shoot with a tripod much or do you just have the the you know the laptop laptop on a tripod somewhere or no i didn't even have the laptop on a tripod i um really like having as like little kit as possible i like traveling really mm. light all my kit can fit into the back of uh, the boot of an uber so that's how i like to keep yeah. it so um you know if i'm in a studio then there'll be like a trestle table or you know somewhere that i can put mm. my laptop and um, if i'm on location someone's house i'll just put my laptop on a chair or yeah. um, if I'm shooting outside, I'll just get my assistant to hold the laptop for me. So I just keep everything yeah. like human really, really easy. Exactly, my human tripod. <laughs> they and, can follow you. Um, yeah, exactly. And then I do this little thing. It's quite complicated. But I know that you can buy tether jerks, but all the tether jerks that I've um, bought have been quite rubbish. So I just do like a kind of homemade one where I um, put, you know, it's too complicated to explain. But oh. I, I, put, I put some um, tape round my um my tether cable and then i insert it underneath the tripod plate have you ever done that yeah, so, too hard to explain. yeah we've, we've got a product mm. that we could give some free advertisement to yeah well, oh, i yeah. think we both we both use it don't we greg yeah uh, it's a it's a piece called photo fortress and yeah. um you f-o-t-o yeah it's basically what you're saying it's a tether it's a it's a plate that sits on the bottom of your camera but it takes the wire in and loops it so that it um gives you a little bit of security in terms of because it runs flush down by the side of the camera then i mean what camera setup are you using actually well so that's effectively what what i do but i just do my own version with the tripod plate so i put the tether cable kind of underneath the tripod plate kind of secured with some tape um right yeah 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 okay does that make sense yeah it's yeah totally this is not a visual medium so it's probably not the conversation we should be having (laughs) um but uh, yeah, in terms of my kit, again, like, you know, I'm very different from Tom. I just have kit and I stick with it. And I, so I have had my Mark III, my Canon 5D Mark III for how many years? Might be like five years, six years. I don't know. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not updated it. 
I only shoot with prime lenses and I've just got three prime lenses and I never rent lenses. I've got a 50 mil, an 85 mil, and then both those are Canon. And then I've got a mm-hmm. 35 mil um, Sigma, which is actually much better than the Canon. It's like really sharp. Um, but I've very, That's my favourite lens. That's one of my favourite lenses yeah, of all it? time. I have owned it. I have owned it five times. Why have you owned it five times? I'm so confused. Very good question. You know, as as an avid listener of the show, you know how many times I've swapped systems. So every time I've owned various systems, I tend to have bought it. So I owned it for Sony E-mount, Canon twice, Nikon. Wow. uh, Twice Nikon. Yeah, it's a brilliant lens. Yeah. I mean, I don't use it. Love it. I don't use it loads just because I use it, you know, we're on location, maybe in someone's house and I'm doing an environmental portrait and there's not loads of space. Mm-hmm. But I pretty much use my 50mm lens for like 90% of the work I do. I just love it. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just brilliant. Um, so, and I think that's kind of, you know, it means that there's probably quite a uniformity in my style because I'm always shooting with my 50mm and my prime lenses. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's my setup and then I've got my pro photos which are all battery operated which is just incredible when you're shooting on location because you just don't have to worry about finding a powerpoint you don't have to worry about anyone tripping mm-hmm. over anything it moves really easily you know you can do you know hundreds of flashes you know before you have to even start worrying about the batteries the battery life is incredible I've never run into any mm-hmm. problems with them on a shoot what um well, how do you how do you pack that all sorry to get really nerdy into kind of kit but we're often especially editorial portraiture it really the i think the, it was a bit game-changing when the first kind of battery-powered lights um turned up you know back in the almost like in the elencrom quadra days you know when you had small smaller battery packs being able to actually you know turn up to a shoot with a rolling bag full of your lighting kit whereas before you know if you especially if you're using the old pro photo acute b heads and the power packs they were massive um but so it is easier now to have a smaller smaller loadout how do you tend to travel with your lighting kit do you have a separate stand bag or do you use one of those big all-in-one bags or no I've got one in a... no well they're in that they come in rucksacks so i've got the b10s yeah. which come in like a tiny they're tiny they come in tiny a tiny rucksack and then b1x's which also mm. in a rucksack so i just keep them in the rucksack i actually did a shoot um on monday out of london which i took the train to because obviously the snow was crazy and it was like no conditions to drive mm. so um with that i had my camera bag um it was just me and my sister on the train so i had my camera bag and then i put the b10 in my long rolling bag which is what i've got all my light shapers in all my light mm-hmm. modifiers in but because they're so small you can just kind of shove them anywhere and then i had my um rucksack with my um b1x's in and then i had my tripods and my stands in another bag so i can travel extremely light Mm. okay that's interesting yeah it's always it's always a, a challenge to try and do it if you're traveling by yourself on public transport um you know yeah, I, don't, I, I, was... I, I don't travel by myself on public transport i mean I, I do remember actually a few trips on the overground when i first started out when i didn't have an assistant and it being yeah pretty hellish with my um Boeing's <laughs> lights which were just extremely cumbersome so um mm-hmm. but yeah now i just yeah get everything in it but i'm not really taking public transport but i do think if you're doing editorial being able to really um streamline your kit is important not having loads of stuff and not having to rent anything that just eats into your yeah. budget yeah 100 can, can i do a, like a really tenuous segue even go on all right so with minimal kit and trying to keep it all lightweight 
and talking about the future of photography and how all our businesses are going to have to develop and stuff like that. What are your thoughts about incorporating video into your workflow? It's 100% something that I need to do. I'm really aware of that. You know, both you and Greg are now not just photographers, but you're photographer directors, aren't you? I think that's now what you have on your website. And Mm -hmm. I feel like everyone is moving in that direction. And increasingly, we're going to be looking at everything online and actually moving image is much more dynamic than stills. So I think we're all going to be required to move with the times and start shooting moving image. Saying that, mm-hmm. I'm not doing it yet <laughs> um, because I still feel like I haven't like mastered photography, but maybe I'll probably never feel that I've mastered <laughs> photography. So, um, so I know that I need to do it, but yeah, I... I think that's going to be my project for 2023. Um, but, you know, I'm mm-hmm. lucky, like, the Canon system's, like, great, but, like, moving image, so I'm hoping the transition won't be too difficult. No, I mean, you've pretty much... I, everyone has now got a camera that pre, can pretty much shoot whatever you need mm-hmm. most of the time. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think me and Greg, we're just... We're kind of just... Maybe we... we Not jump the gun a bit, but we, we kind of got into it quite early. You know, I'm, I've I've really loved shooting it, so it's I, w- I would now say it's probably fifty fifty in my job. That's amazing, and presumably clients are increasingly calling on you to do both as well. You know, you have to be able to offer that. To yeah, I, 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 honestly, I, I would say so. I think I've kind of won some big. I mean, the the trouble is, right? I, I do a lot of these commissions that you don't see on the website and you don't see on the Instagram and stuff like that. A lot of my work is stuff I don't show. Um, and I, I would say most of those projects are now the reason I got them is because of video and right. they're probably a 50 50 split between motion and stills. No, yeah, so so I think yeah. That, that's where it's I would going say I, for sure. Yeah, pers- personally, for me, ma- massively important, okay. but that's 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 your sector of the of the industry it's not necessarily the way it's going for every sector of the industry no ab- absolutely i can i can only ever speak from my from my in, experience but yeah in no, terms I, of por- in terms of I, portraiture I, I don't think we're going to be asked to be capturing capture moving portraits for the weekend supplements but you know no, i am no i don't think so more, more, but i am hoping to get more commercial work over the next few years mm-hmm. and in and in that sector for sure i'll be asked to do moving image I'm not. I'm not going to lie so far. I'm very, very jealous of you. So my my editorial work basically kind of almost all all dried up during and after COVID. Uh, so I, I would love to be doing more editorial stuff. I, I really do miss a lot of it. So, but and, I think and, maybe and the, yeah, like it's, to... it's always worth it's always worth reaching out to out to people. You know, I think picture editors have like quite short memories, and unless you're kind of you know getting in touch, then they probably would have forgotten about you pretty quickly. So. Definitely, you should be reaching yeah, out. That's, so that's when you that's do more. True. I probably should, really, shouldn't I? But yeah, this is, you know, this is kind of one of the reasons we started the podcast is to help other people reach out to people and then get a yeah. kick up the ass from our guests because I haven't yeah. reached out to anyone in a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I I should do that. That's what that's one of my biggest bugbears is just finding the t- going back to being like, you know, just having no time. Yeah, it's it's no, always the first thing for me that goes is the reaching out to people. I always no, forget to do it. I'm terrible. But if for you know, it. It, but it, it like you know, I I often do this. I think, well, what like what do I want to be doing with my career? And then you you know you decide which is the most important thing, and then you kind of pursue that. Mm-hmm. So if for you you're feeling that editorial is really what you want to be pursuing, and that's more important than anything else, then you know you'll find the time to do that. 
That's true. Hopefully. That's true. I should. Perfect. Are there, are there any other aspects that you kind of, if we're talking, you know, aside from the video side of thing, have you thought, you know, what, um, how photography is going to look in kind of 10 years time, perhaps? I really have no predictions because I think, you know, it surprises us. You know, when I first started assisting 15 years ago, the look was very lit. You know, um, yeah. you know, everybody was using Photoshop with, with abandon. And that was like, you know, when I was looking at agents' website, that was like the kind of level of photography I was seeing. And then there's this, been this kind of huge resurgence of people using film now. And that being like a really big aesthetic and like, you know, there being no mm. lighting and no obvious retouching. And that, you know, I think people just really want that feeling of authenticity and, you know, the kind of mood that film brings with it. So um, mm. I, I, I have absolutely no idea because on one hand, there's, you know, huge technological advances being made with, you know, these new types of 3D cameras. And um, well, I think we'll see much more like 3D imagery in, t- in terms of moving imagery. But and on the other side, there's also mm. a huge appetite for people shooting on film and, you know, minimal intervention yeah. in terms of technology. So I, I, I mm. really, I really couldn't say at all. I really could. I just, I don't yeah. have a clue. I don't have a clue. But I think personally, I'm just going to keep my head down and just like do what I enjoy doing and not try and be swayed by mm-hmm. fashion because I think you've got to be true to your own style, you know, and hopefully people mm-hmm. will come to you for that. But I'm not going to suddenly start shooting in a specific way because I feel that's where photography's going. Yeah. Smart. That's wise. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. you've got to be kind of finding your own natural evolution with it. Obviously, our work changes as our careers change, but you've it's that finding that balance between kind of following the trend, but also following right. your heart in a way mm. and, and doing what you want to do because that's why you're being hired is, is people like the way that you see the world. Openly. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Well, the final question that we tend to ask all our guests um, is... About what, do you mean, your... what do you mean we tend to ask? We always, we always ask, ask. Without a well, fail. We tend we tend to ask sorry oh, the, the problem is Sophia listens to the show Greg yeah, that's true so we can't okay. we can't get anything past I don't that even, I don't even need I to know ask the question coming. then I know it's all, like, exactly <laughs> day I've so if you were going to send me to Desert Island this what um, camera would I take and what photo <laughs> book would I take uh, um, Sophia sorry the lawyers are here in the room with me we're not allowed <laughs> to say the actual name of the show we're ripping off yeah. <laughs> not anything oh, right. to do with discs okay, okay. sorry sorry <laughs> <laughs> um, I might, I'm sure you say Desert Island you, if you cast me off to a Desert Island and yeah, yeah but you added the disc <laughs> no I added the disc sorry I didn't mean to add this sorry this is the song and this is um, the final episode of the Exposed Negative <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so um, my camera would be my Hasselblad 503CW it was um, oh. the first serious camera I bought and um, in my early 20s when I graduated um, from uni and bought it on finance and it just felt like such a crazy investment but um, it really helped me develop my style as a photographer I shot for film in mm-hmm. film probably, for the first probably worth years. twice what you paid for it now I know exactly exactly I mean I haven't looked into it but I'll never sell it just for sentimental purposes and it's what I shoot all my personal work on 
and it is just a joy to shoot with. I don't find holding a um, mm -hmm. digital camera up to my face and taking a photograph a joyful act, but taking a photograph on my Hasselblad, just, I just love it. I just think it's just amazing, the sound that it makes. The there is something the about it, isn't it? Oh, it's just amazing. And, and, and also the glass, you know, of the lenses is so beautiful when you look through the prism Mm -hmm. And you're, you know, focusing the image and it's coming into focus. It just makes the world look 100% better. It's just an amazing camera. Mm -hmm. So that would be my desert no, island camera. I'm with you. And then um, my um, uh, desert island uh, photo book would be, I mean, it, it's quite This is great, Greg. We don't, we don't actually, we could just sit back and enjoy this bit. Um, <laughs> would be, um, so, well... It's like really shamefully, you know, because I'd only studied photography for a year and we didn't have any, like, history of photography or anything. It was, like, purely practical. So I kind of discovered photographers quite late in the day and I only discovered Irving Penn a couple of years ago and I was just blown away by his mm. stuff and he's got a book called Centennial, which is kind mm -hmm. of, um, you know, a load of his images, but particularly there's these images that he shot in kind of post-war America that like kind of late 1940s and their studio portraits. And they're now, you know, over 70, 80 years old and I still think they look incredibly modern. And they're just black mm. and white portraits shot in the studio, completely paired back, you know, no props, maybe like a, somebody leaning on a table covered in a rug or something, but I just love them. I think they're amazing portraits, so definitely seek them out. Nice. Fantastic. Well, at this point, we should probably also mention your own book for listeners who who um, aren't aware, but you, um, you've you had your own book published, uh, was it with Os uh, Hoxton Mini Press, wasn't it? Yeah, it was with Hoxton Mini Press last year, which was, yeah, pretty exciting. Um, one good, yeah, so, the one good thing to come out of the pandemic. So yeah, well, it's a beautiful yeah. book. Um, Thank you. I don't own it, but I've 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 browsed it. I, I will um, send you a copy. It, it's beautiful. Oh, thank oh. you. Well, it's very kind of you. You don't need to do that. We no, well, I got I got given to remunerate you. No, no, I got given kind of twenty copies or something, and then I don't really know what to do with them because it seems a bit kind of cheesy, like handing them out to people. So, but because you don't no, have one, a, and you've mentioned it, it's a great calling card. I, yeah, I know, but it does well, feel a bit embarrassing, well, like look, turning up for meeting, like wielding my book and giving it to people. So, you guys get one for sure. That's your Christmas present, present from <sighs> oh, me. Oh, bless you, bless oh. you. Oh, thank you so much. Very kind. Well, th listen, the um, uh, people should check it out. It's Park Life: A Love Letter to London's Green Spaces, and um, it's a beautiful book. It was. Um, did you? Can you tell us a little bit about it? I know we've done our final question, but actually, whilst we're on the subject, tell us a little bit about the book because people should go out and seek it out. Uh, so, um, obviously, in March 2020, um, you know, if you're a photographer, all your work dried up overnight. And we all found ourselves twiddling our thumbs. You guys started a podcast, um, but mm -hmm. I decided to take out my camera and shoot in the one place that we were all allowed to go, which was the parks. And actually, parks kind of really hold a really special place in my heart. I'm a born and bred Londoner, and I honestly just think like London's parks are incredible. Like I'm obsessed with trees, mm -hmm. and I just love how green the city is. And I think that time when we couldn't do anything but go to parks everybody started appreciating the spaces that we had um and they mm. actually you know acted as a, a you know a real kind of balm and a place of solace for everybody to kind of go to in these kind of, in this kind of turbulent mm -hmm. times 
So, um, so just over the course of a year, I just went to probably maybe 60 or 70 London parks or green spaces all over London and just shot people's portraits. And um, Hoxton Mini Press decided to publish it, which was really exciting. So that is the book. So it's kind of street photography, but in parks instead. And that kind of, in that tradition of street portraiture, but in parks instead. So. And is it is it all digital or film? It was all shot on film. All shot on film. Yes. Yeah, was it shot on your Hasselblad that you've it was, taken it to was the shot island? On my ha- it was shot on my Hasselblad. And what was so amazing about that was, you know, I'd stopped all my kind of commissioned work. And I just went back to the basics in terms of photography. So I would put my Hasselblad in my rucksack with some film and my light meter and get on my bicycle and bike somewhere, you know, like to South London yeah, or North London or wherever. And I had mm-hmm. very um, short time frames in which I could work because I had a baby at the time. She was 14 months old and she slept for two hours at lunchtime and then she went to bed at seven o'clock every night. So I would go out during her lunchtime nap when my husband was working from home or I'd go out on my bicycle when um, when she'd gone to mm. bed. So there are a lot of kind of magic hour um, kind of photographs. Yeah. And um, it was, yeah, it was kind of um, amazing. It really reignited my love of photography, which was just like back to basics, me and my camera, um, you know, outside and um, yeah, meeting some really interesting and lovely people in the process. So it was, yeah, it was really fantastic thing to do. And it was, you know, completely kept my sanity during that kind of mad time. Oh, that's so nice. That's so nice to hear. Well, listen, I tell you what, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to find you, not not in real life, but like if people want to find you virtually, <laughs> where where can they uh, where they can find you online? Um, they can go to my website, which is spring.com or they can find me on Instagram, um, and I think I'm underscore Sophia underscore spring. I think that's it. Um, and that's it. Yeah, drop me a line, say hello. Um, so yeah, that's it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. We really appreciate it. Not at all. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks very much for watching the latest episode of The Exposed Negative. If you found it interesting or just want to feedback or you've got any comments or, or guest suggestions or anything that we can do to improve the show, please email us at info at exposednegative.com. You can follow us on Instagram at xnegative. And if you want to follow us personally, why wouldn't you? It's at tombarnes.com and uh, at Greg Fennell. And really hope you enjoy the next episode. <laughs>